Hello. Happy New Year and welcome to the Myths and History of Greece and Rome. Chapter 105. Why did Rome fall? The question, why did Rome fall, has taxed many far better scholars than me. What caused the Western Empire to collapse while the Eastern Empire survived? In fact, it positively thrived until the rise of Islam and even in the 10th century was still one of the leading powers in the region. There are also varying opinions on when the rot started to set in. Did Rome fall in 476, or really in 1453, when Constantinople was taken by the Turks? Did it really begin its fall when Augustus stealthily killed the Republic? Did the collapse begin after the death of Marcus Aurelius, when the Praetorian Guard seemed to own the succession? In this chapter, I'll sift through the various answers that have been given, and give what I consider to be the most likely answer. So first, let's list the broad categories in which the answers fall. There are a myriad of subcategories, but a full review is well beyond the scope of this podcast. These are the main reasons given by scholars over the years. 1. Christianity caused a change in the morals and values of the empire and weakened its structures. 2. Political corruption weakened the management of the empire. 3. The foreign powers and barbarians became stronger and more organised and were a vastly greater threat. 4. The economy couldn't cope. As Rome stopped expanding, its treasure resources began to run out, leaving too little money to run a huge empire. Increased spending on the military left too little for spending elsewhere. 5. Technological stagnation. Roman engineers built wondrous aqueducts, roads and bridges, but failed to develop in other areas, such as farming. 6. The political system simply couldn't cope with the increasing demands at the top, and thus the empire collapsed from the inside. 7. The decision to split the empire into two to ease the problems of management caused a rift between the two halves that was never healed. 8. The changes in the structure of the army into smaller units reduced the once awesome power of the Roman forces and made them inadequate for defending the empire. 9. Too many, particularly Germanic barbarians, were let into the empire and the army. They were not Romans and so fought less loyally. And 10. The army was patronised so heavily by the emperors that the soldiers got too big for their boots and sought control beyond their station. Can any of these things be the reason why the empire fell? Or is it more complicated? OK, let's take the Christianity angle first. In his great work, The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Edward Gibbon gives the spreading of Christianity as the primary reason. It's true that Christianity changed the way things were done. Churchmen grew in influence and decisions were affected by the strictures of the teachings of the new religion. Theodosius the Great, the last man who truly had a grasp of his whole empire, was forced into penance for the massacre at Thessalonica. On the other hand, the old pagan religion had a significant effect on decision-making too. The oracles were consulted, various interesting divining rituals were used to see if a decision was for good or bad. Did the change to a new religion really cause the structure to weaken so much that Rome fell? I don't think so. One of the most compelling arguments against this is the subsequent survival and prosperity of the Eastern Empire. In fact, the Eastern or Byzantine emperors referred to themselves as God's vicegerent or second in command on earth. They derived some of their legitimacy from the fact they were there on behalf of God. It seems unlikely that Christianity caused the downfall of the West. 
The lack of technological improvements and the economic impact theories are just that, theories. In fact, they don't even conform to the definition of a theory. They're not testable. They are merely hypotheses. It's probably true that trade reduced and the empire became poorer after the first century AD. But did this really precipitate the collapse? I don't think so. There's not enough data about the true economic state of the empire, but the effects of mass unemployment do not seem to have resulted in riots or popular coups. There are virtually no records of the people rising up and taking control during imperial times. Nearly all of the coups, and there were very, very many, were carried out by army officers, not by the common man. So did these things call the downfall of Rome? No. They may have contributed to hardship and added a little to the growing unrest, but it's unlikely they caused Rome to fall. So what about the foreign enemies of Rome? Were they really stronger and more organised than before? Well, no, not really. The Parthian and Sassanid empires from Persia were always the strongest and most well-organised of Rome's neighbours. But the power of Persia had waxed and waned without the influence of its massive neighbour. Trajan had been able to defeat them roundly in the first century, but Julian had managed to do the same in the fourth. The Sassanids were certainly no more threatening in the fifth century than they had been in earlier years. In fact, they were not high on the list of imperial problems. And there's one key thing to remember. Persia was Rome's eastern neighbour. Any danger it posed was most starkly felt in the east, not the west. And yet it was the west that fell. The barbarian tribes were probably no stronger or more well organised than they had been at any other time during the previous 500 years. Augustus had suffered a terrible defeat in the Tudorborg Forest. Was this defeat really less serious than Decius's at Abritus? OK, so Decius had died fighting the Goths, whereas Augustus had not done the fighting himself. But were the Goths of Abritus really stronger than previous invaders? No, not really. Like most of the forces before them, they were a transient threat. Their presence in the empire was a little different. They were not a raiding force of fighting men, they were a whole population migrating from one place to another. The rise of the Huns had forced them westward into imperial territory, and their women and children came too. But the threat of the Huns was transient as well. The influx of barbarians may actually have extended the life of the empire rather than shortening it. Goths and other Germans were added to the imperial army in droves, and they were generally thought to have been excellent fighters. They tended to fight in their own units and be commanded by Germanic leaders, but they fought well for the empire. Rome was well used to assimilating other peoples. The Gauls, Britons, the Egyptians, the Greeks, all had been brought into the empire and by the early 3rd century had been given full Roman citizenship. Their addition to the empire's population, even in their own homelands, had not caused popular revolt and secession. Life improved under Roman rule and most of the assimilated peoples accepted it and prospered. It didn't need to have been any different for the Germanic influxes of the 3rd and 4th centuries. And in fact most of the early migration was highly successful. It was only when corrupt Roman leaders badly mismanaged the influx of a large number of Goths under Fritigern that tensions rose to the extent that a full-scale battle took place. It was Roman actions that caused the disaster that was Adrianople. It was all eminently avoidable. Even Alaric, the first sacker of Rome for 700 years, really wanted a place for his people to settle. He didn't want to take Rome down, he wanted to become part of it. So the Western Roman Empire was not, in my opinion, brought down by religion, lack of progress, economic hardship or external forces. 
All of these things would have put strains on the bonds holding it all together, but none was big enough to bring a mighty empire to its knees. A mighty empire can only crumble from within. Once it's crumbled, then economic pressures, lack of progress, and especially external enemies can combine to bring it down. And this is what happened to the Western Roman Empire. I believe that Rome and its Western Roman Empire was toppled by its own political system, or more precisely, by its lack of a political system. A fully functioning governmental structure can withstand the influences we've described. If the tenets of government are sound and the way of doing things is clear, then difficulties can be overcome. When the system is unclear, creaky and positively sick, then it can't. In fact, the effects of negative things which should be manageable become magnified and are compounded by a system which is incapable of making the right decision. So, to explain, let's look back a bit. The seeds of the downfall of Rome were sown more than 500 years before the city was lost to Odebaker. When Gaius Marius and Lucius Cornelius Sulla fought each other for control, they started to break the Republic. The Republic had rules. Okay, they may not have been the fairest or most sensible of rules, but they were rules. Chief among them were the precursors to some of today's most workable democracies. Leadership had a fixed term. Nobody could do anything too mad whilst in charge for fear of retribution once he had lost office. In fact, the top job, the consulship, could not be held by the same person in consecutive years. The checks and balances were there. Once Marius and Sulla gained power by illegally holding office more than they should and abusing the power of the dictatorship, they opened the door to future tyranny. Pompey, Julius Caesar and finally Augustus murdered the Republic in the years after Marius and Sulla. But they kept its corpse warm. Augustus pretended the Senate was still in charge and made a point of consulting them on everything. He called himself the Princeps, first citizen. He never once referred to himself as an emperor or king. Although the Senate had no real power, it still had dignity, and this dignity needed to be preserved. Not only that, senators also served in the highest offices. They ran provinces and thus the armies contained within them. There was no real incentive for rebellion. The senatorial families would always enjoy wealth and power. They didn't need to try for the top job. And anyway, no senator held enough forces to try to usurp the emperor, and no one had enough influence to try and stir up enough senators to stage a revolt. Public life was centred on the city of Rome, and so the important people were always under the gaze of the imperial family. Any political rivals could be watched. Emperors could delegate military campaigns to senatorial subordinates without fear of revolt. This fiction of a continuing republic carried on throughout the period of the empire known as the Principate. The fact that the situation was generally stable is demonstrated by the fact that disastrous leaders such as Nero and Commodus reigned for more than a decade before they were overthrown. Government carried on without them, and when they were done away with, it was by a cabal of senators, not a military coup. In each case there was a plan for what would happen next, and a plan that was devised and implemented by senators. OK, so both plans actually failed after less than a year, but the plans were in place and they were carried out. The system, or lack of it, held together because Rome was a triumph. This is where I have a little more agreement with Edward Gibbon. Pretty much from the accession of Vespasian until the death of Marcus Aurelius, the empire had more than a hundred years of unbroken success. Wealth and military victory masked the problem with the system. When things were a little more challenging, the system broke. 
so from the time of Augustus onward, Rome was a monarchy in all but name. Now, I can hear people saying yes, but there were many successful monarchies. In fact, absolute monarchy was the model in all successful European states for the next 1200 years or so after the fall of Rome. In the Dark Ages and medieval and Renaissance Europe, absolute monarchies worked well. In fact, the absolute monarchy of the later Eastern Roman or Byzantine Empire was a highly successful model. So it's not the monarchy in itself that was the problem. No, the problem was the lack of rules associated with it, the king-making ability of the military, the unhealthy ambition of many a man, and the necessity to cling to power once it was achieved. The catalyst for the breaking of the system was the assassination of Commodus. This is not a hugely important event in the history of Rome, but it precipitated the selling of the throne by the Praetorians. The power shifted very dramatically to a military body. They chose Didius Julianus. Septimius Severus used this event and his command of a significant number of legions to grab the throne for himself. He proved that having military might gave one the tools to grab power, and his fierce ambition did the rest. And thus the army became all-powerful. Severus and Caracalla patronised their soldiers to such an extent they came to expect it. The military men also grasped the inevitable truth. They had control over who would rule. Before long, soldiers became emperors. No longer was it necessary for the top job to be held by someone of senatorial rank. In the 70 years or so after the death of Severus, only two ruling Roman emperors out of more than 30 died of natural causes. The others were acclaimed by the soldiers and then jettisoned when someone more useful came along. Even highly successful and well-respected men such as Aurelian and Probus ended up assassinated. The endless civil wars cost the empire dear, in both resources and peace of mind. And thus, slowly, the mindset of Rome changed. The leaders needed more than anything to hang on to power, because loss of power meant death. This meant the emperor needed to be in command of a large proportion of the army himself. Delegation became dangerous. The system was preventing Rome from being effective in its own defence. The only solution to this endless round of civil wars was constitutional change. This was only attempted once during the long decline of Rome. Diocletian completely overhauled the administration and defence of the empire. The emperor had to be in control of most of the army or he was likely to be overthrown. Solution? More than one emperor. Two and then four emperors were more able to manage what went on. The Tetrarchy worked, and it worked well, but it also had major flaws. First, it legitimised the concept of a split empire. The division between East and West was created, even though the public message was clear that it was still one empire. Second, and perhaps more important, it couldn't last without a clear and harmonious process for replacing leaders. Diocletian and Maximian retired after 20 successful years, but they appointed their successors, and their successors didn't get on. This led to 15 more years of civil war and the emergence of Constantine. Third, the bureaucracy needed to run the empire grew and military and administrative posts were separated entirely. And all of this definitely didn't fix the system. The empire settled under a strong leader once more, but fractured when he died. Although the 4th century empire experienced fewer civil wars than in the 3rd, there was still no agreed constitutional process. The army tended to support the current dynasty, but it was a free-for-all once the dynasty died. Thus the need for the emperor to control the larger part of the army remained. 
and so the system stagnated. The bureaucracy grew and the effectiveness of the defences declined. There was one last hurrah when Theodosius briefly reunited both halves of the empire and ruled effectively, but this was the last throw of the dice. His useless sons allowed themselves to be propped up by Germanic military leaders and the importance of the emperor waned. The system was inadequate, it couldn't deal with this situation and the dynasty of Theodosius continued just as uselessly in place when his grandsons took over from their fathers. Many of these barbarian military men who propped up the emperors did their best for the empire, but the lack of a strong leadership and any sort of plan doomed them to failure. Over a period of time territory was lost, almost by accident. The Vandals and Visigoths were no stronger than their predecessors, they simply met no resistance because the Roman system had failed and the empire was crumbling from inside. And so Rome fell, as Mike Duncan puts it, not with a bang but with a whimper, destroyed from the inside by an unworkable political system. And why did the East survive? Well, maybe mostly because it was lucky. The barbarians migrated westward and the territory they took was in the west. The eastern empire's border with barbarian territory was close to Constantinople and so perhaps more defendable. The Persians were less active during this time and though the threat from the east was less. And then there was leadership in the system. As the west fell, strong leaders emerged in the east. Marcion, Leo, Zeno and Anastasius all held the empire together and a new system emerged. The Byzantine emperor was God's vicegerent on earth. A genuine absolute monarchy with hereditary succession emerged. And ten years after Anastasius died, another man came to the throne who rebuilt Constantinople and the empire in his own image. But even this didn't last. Not many years after, this, Byzantium's most famous leader, died. The title of the ruler of the Eastern Empire was Basileus, the Greek word for king. By the mid-600s, the title Augustus had ceased to be used and the Roman Empire, as it had previously existed, was gone. What replaced it was a Greek monarchy. But it was a successful, absolute monarchy. That system remained in place for another 800 years. Next time, we'll go back to charting the history of the Eastern Roman Empire and find out about the rise of Peter Sabatius. Until then, have a great couple of weeks and I'll speak to you next time. <laughs>